Hello, and welcome to Ground Control Parenting, a blog and now a podcast created for parents raising black and brown children. I'm the creator and your host, Carol Sutton Lewis. In this podcast series, I talk with some really interesting people about the job and the joy of parenting. Today, I am thrilled to welcome Kayla Allen Omeza to the podcast. She's a co-founder of a fintech company and the author of Afrotistic, a wonderful book for young adults. Afrotistic tells the story of 15-year-old Noah and her efforts to navigate high school, adolescence, and autism. Kayla knows quite a bit about autism, having worked on various research projects on autism, psychology, and mental health at Harvard, Duke, and as a U.S. Fulbright Scholar in Nigeria, and because she was diagnosed with autism spectrum disorder at 24 years old. She is an avid mental health services volunteer and mentor. She's a graduate of Miami University and the University of Oxford. An American citizen, she lives in Oxford, England with her husband, Daniel. Welcome to Ground Control Parenting, Kayla. Oh, thank you very much, Carol. I'm happy to be here. Up until now, I've been talking with parents about various aspects of the job of parenting black and brown children, but I'm so happy to have you here today to give us the different and really important perspective of how you were parented, particularly through your autism diagnosis. I'm excited to talk with you today about your book, your mental health work, and your thoughts about what parents might want to know about supporting autistic children. So let's get started. Okay, so first, Kayla, tell me about where you grew up, your siblings, where was home for you? Sure. So the short answer to that is that I grew up in I'm in a town outside of Buffalo, New York, but I actually, mm-hmm. we actually didn't move to that town until I was about 12 going on 13. My dad was a military officer, actually, so we moved around a lot when I was really young. I think most um, standardly, we um, we. We were living in Japan for six years, from when I was six to twelve. So um, in, I'm near wow. Tokyo until I was nine, and then um, and then um, in Okinawa, Japan, until I was twelve. Before moving to the suburb of Buffalo, New York. Wow. Oh yes, I have uh, two siblings. Um, I have a younger brother and a younger sister. Wow, that's great. So it's really interesting that you received your autism diagnosis when you were 24. But you've said that there were ways you felt or emotions that you experienced while you were growing up, which could have given some clues to your neurodiversity. Can you talk about the times in your childhood, and and I imagine it may have been exacerbated by having to move around a lot, but when you felt that you were sort of walking a different path from your siblings or your friends? Um, When I was, especially when, um, when we were in Japan, before that, it's hard to differentiate, especially in hindsight. But um, I did feel like I was stimming a lot <laughs> when I was mm-hmm. uh, when I was a kid specifically, and uh, my parents. I'm sorry, you said skimming. Uh, skimming. Yes. Oh, actually, S T I M M I N G. So um, autism. Oh, stimming. Uh-huh. Yeah, they have like these um, stimming behaviors. Some some people do to help you kind of cope when you're overstimulated, for example. And um, I think mm-hmm. that probably a really common phenomenon with that is like kind of flapping your hands. Uh, walking back and forth, um, um, like kind of picking the skin around your nails. And I've, I've done all of them um, um, almost my entire life. And um, so I was definitely doing that. Were they self-soothing? Were they designed to make you feel better? Yes, yes. Um, I didn't know that at the time. But honestly, I would usually do that when I was already stressed, actually. So, um, so ah. for a while, I actually thought, I was doing it because, yeah, because I was stressed. It was making me more stressed. But later I realized I was doing it. It was actually making me feel better. I, when I was growing up, I, I just realized um, my brother and sister, they were making friends and keeping friends. And I just, I felt like I wasn't doing that as well as, as they were. And they were younger than me too. So I just felt like I should have been like kind of the role model in that situation. And I was just really surprised that I wasn't. <laughs> and then, I, I, yeah, I also had um, 
especially when I was in middle school, I would have like this really, it was really dangerous dimming behavior. I, I would, no one, never, no one ever saw me do this, but I would go to a closet in my room and just like kind of really lightly or sometimes even slightly, slightly more aggressively, like kind of bang my head against the wall because I was just really overwhelmed by something, by just something that happened in school that day. And mm-hmm. I would just do that for like 30 minutes at a time when I was specifically in middle school, but also in high school and even when I came over to college sometimes too. Yeah, I, I was I was always convinced I was adopted, for example. Um, that was just oh. like, I was completely set that that was the case. Um, and yeah, it really annoyed my parents. <laughs> like, no, we were adopted. We, we were you. <laughs> and um, and I just never, it never 100% went away <laughs> until I was 23 when we all took an ancestry DNA test just because, just out of curiosity about that for Christmas. And when I was able to find Finally, on the, the DNA test that my parents and my parents and my siblings were my siblings. That's when I stopped <laughs> bringing it up. Wow, that is that is a really good use of that science. <laughs> I'm sorry it took so long for it to come out <laughs> for right. you to feel that way. But <laughs> so, how were you able, or were you able, to share the way that you felt with your your siblings and your parents? I mean, they could see you doing some of these stimming. I mean, I'm I'm so sorry to hear about the banging, but maybe they could see a bruise on your head. I mean, they could see some evidence of this. And how did you share it with them, or did they know what was going on? Um, uh, to be fair, I didn't really. Um, I I wasn't the best communicator when I was young, but um, I did. I would I would come home from school really angry or really stressed. My parents even told me just like, it was looking back that it just seemed like I was just being yeah, we're just being a teenager, just upset about something. Yeah, when, when like the adopted situation came up, for example, they just thought yeah, I was still being a teenager and just still just not really, just still trying to find my place in the world. So I did feel like I was different. Um, my parents could see some some signs of like, for example, just they would recall like when I was especially a teenager, I would seem kind of more spaced out. Then my peers were, um, mm-hmm. were it, it kind of blended in a little bit more when I was a child, but um, especially when I was a teenager, I, I, I was still doing that a little bit more than anybody else, or a lot more than everybody else. And um, But I think, like, taking all that together, even when I would express that I wasn't really feeling well, and I didn't I didn't feel like I fit in, I felt like I was adopted and stuff, um, I think mm-hmm. that was just me, basically. I was just a teenager, and I was just my personality. So I know it's tough in hindsight, but I know that parents listening would be really interested in hearing. Is there anything that you, now looking back, think that perhaps your parents might have been able to be more helpful when you were younger? I mean, is there things that you, now knowing what you now know about how you were feeling? Right. Is there anything you wish they would have known or done something differently? Yeah, yeah, assuming that like autism awareness and a lot of mental health awareness wasn't still wasn't um, in their radar. <laughs> basically, mm-hmm. I would wish yeah my parents would just sit me down and ask more. They they would have asked more um, why my why questions like why do you feel this way? You just yeah you just had this really good grade in their test. Why why are you feeling like yeah you don't belong here? Why are you feeling like you don't belong in your own family? You're you're um, in your school. I wish they were a lot more why questions. Of course, I don't know how I would have responded, um, especially to my parents, if that was yeah. what I felt I mm-hmm. wish I had a chance. Even for myself to just just to think about like why I was hurting. Yeah, just even for that, just for that use case specifically, just to, to kind of introspect a little bit would have been really helpful. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned that, you mentioned school and that even if you did well in school, sort of it wasn't sort of calming, sort of generally calming. How was school for you when you were young. I mean, you clearly have been a high achiever, sort of Oxford, you've done all this great research. You've said that it didn't start out that way. I mean, how was school for you in the early years? 
I always say that I was very woefully average um, for most of, of most of my childhood. <laughs> I was just I wasn't really winning any academic awards or anything. I would like I I would always go above and beyond for any creative writing tasks. But of course, that usually that that stopped being um, taught or implemented in school school curriculums like past middle school. I think yeah, I didn't really do all that well. I can't say I was terrible, but I wasn't. I graduated from high school in the bottom half of my class, just for, for reference. Mm-hmm. I was probably mm-hmm. in the, I think I was in the top end of the bottom half, but like it was, um, <laughs> but it was still the bottom half. Um, and I, I felt like I really worked hard too. So I felt like I was very woefully average. <laughs> Uh, but then, I mean, <laughs> but then something happened. Right. So what happened? Um, so right. So when I went to when I went to university, actually, I I majored in psychology. So I wasn't. So like, again, I wasn't like this terrible person in high school. But like for example, I I took an AP psychology class, and I did I did decent on it. I got like a like a D plus or something. And I just really I liked it too. And I I think I did really well because I really I really enjoyed what I was learning. I really like the neuroscience like topics that we're talking about specifically. So I just like on a whim decided to major in that in college. I wanted to major in psychology mm-hmm. and minor in neuroscience, ideally. And the more I got into those classes, the absolute better I did. <laughs> I just four point were just coming out of nowhere basically, and I uh, yeah wow. and I, yeah I graduated <laughs> with a pretty high GPA. I worked extremely hard on like research projects that weren't that weren't necessary. Like I just wanted to do it, and uh, obviously looked really good applying to graduate school. So that's how I was able to get a lot of the research opportunities after I graduated, and then eventually get into Oxford for my master's program. Wow! So something clicked. Before I go more into that, I want to just ask you: when you were growing up, from beginning elementary school through middle school and high school, did you go to school with a lot of other black students? Oh, no, no. <laughs> I think going into high school, there was one black. One other black girl in my grade, um, and then one other black boy in my grade. And going into high school, I think when we graduated, there was about in my class of like two fifty. I think there were about three or four others at that point. <laughs> so no, it was it was very low. <laughs> wow. So did that complicate your efforts to fit in at all? Uh, yes, I would say so. I think, especially as a black girl, I think I um, had a lot of stereotypes against me that didn't work in my favor that mm-hmm. I had to overcome, basically. And a lot of like just typical high school experiences, I felt like I wasn't, um, I was kind of like left out on. Like I felt like no one was more interested in like going on a date with me or going to dance with me for anything. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And even if I was more social, um, I felt like that was just not, just not a thing for the black girls for whatever reason. And it was, yeah, it was just unfortunate. So yeah, yes, I felt like that was an issue, but it was always the case when I was growing up. For example, I lived in Japan too. So I never really thought like, oh, I'm different because of racism or because of, um, because I, maybe I'm autistic or anything. I never really crossed my mind. It was just like, oh, I'm just this black girl navigating, like just being plopped into like another culture basically. And I need to navigate that. Looking back, mm-hmm. it definitely, it made it impossible honestly, for like, a lot of people to see that it was, it was another underlying condition going on. So. Mm. Okay. So another question about college, was it easier for you socially as well? Or was it just great to dive right into the book so it didn't matter as much? Right. It was, no, it was absolutely not <laughs> easier for me socially. Um, I think um, um, it's unfortunate. In my experience in college, luckily it, it wasn't the case after college, but in my experience in college, I felt like there was this one way to be black in like, at least for the people that I was, that I knew. <laughs> and I was not that one way. Mm-hmm. It was funny at first when I would be like, Oh, sorry, I don't know how to play spades. I grew up with my people kind of thing. And they would, they would just laugh and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> like those kind of instances just kept coming up and coming up and coming up. So it just, it like became extremely hard to fit in even with among uh, other, other black individuals. Yeah. Yeah. No, that makes, that makes sense. 
So fast forward, you're through the college and you are you found this whole area of research which is exciting, you're excelling in it. And then you finally were able to get to the autism diagnosis. What led to it? What prompted you to to discover this? Right. So um I yeah, I was working at uh, Duke at the time at the Brain Imaging Analysis Center. And um I was I was just having yeah, mental health issues. But I was also having like a really bad falling out with friends at the same time, which just like exacerbated all of my mental mm-hmm. health issues. I got into the Fulbright. I got into Oxford was like almost like two months later. The doctors knew I was I was going in and out of like inpatient psychiatric units um, because I was mm-hmm. really not coping well. So I went to the doctor trying to pretend like everything was fine. I was like, I just need you to sign off on this that I need to go that I'm going to go and work in Nigeria by myself for nine months. And they're like, no, you, you need to, um, I'm not going to sign this until you go to an individual therapy once a week and a group therapy once a week for six months at least. And then um, once, you, once you have some physicians telling, like noting that you're progressing and like noting that you're a little, that you have a little bit more coping skills to be in another country by yourself, <laughs> and then I'll sign off. So I did that. <laughs> so that was just basically my motivation to kind of get more structural help, not just like on, on and off help. And so I did that. And one one of my individual therapy sessions, they were, um, yeah, there was definitely some, even I knew too, there was definitely some like clusters that of symptoms that could really easily fit like a DSM <laughs> diagnosis. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, they were, so we were just trying to see what other underlying condition it was. Uh, I, I just mentioned to her that like, I just don't, I never wear jeans. For example, I don't really, I tried to when I was in high school, for example, and I just, it was, it was the worst thing ever. So I, I haven't worn jeans or anything that's too tight on me. And then she, when she asked a little bit more questions about it, she realized I, I'm really averse to anything that's too bright, too loud. Yeah, she and I agreed that maybe it makes sense to refer me to an autism um, assessor, so just to see. And um, and actually, the more mm-hmm. I was explaining my symptoms, the more I believed actually I could be, but of course, I wasn't 100% sure. Mm-hmm. And, and it also just seemed like too big of a thing for me that for it to be missed for that for like <laughs> so I wasn't all it just, yeah it wasn't all the way sure either. So when I did I did the assessment, it was two weeks total, but like it was two sessions that were about like three hours each. I think yeah, it was really it was really intense. And yeah, it came out like yeah that I was autistic and that I was also I also had anxiety too. Yeah, I was I was surprised <laughs> actually, but yeah. Yeah, well that 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 leads to my next question. So. Give me all of the different ways that you must have reacted to this. I mean, because you'd heard of autism and you, as you said, you thought that that would have been picked up at some point earlier, but how did you feel when they suggested it and it sounded right? Um, so my, my parents actually joked about it. I think I had to wait like about two or three weeks in between like my last test. And my my parents like call, I think I'm pretty sure they called the assessor like during that wait because I was... Like during that wait, I was getting really hyper fixated on on like autism symptoms, and I would like s- start sending my mom like articles, like look, 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 look. I think I have this because of this, and I would just keep. And I would just really, it was really clear that I was, it was all I was focusing on, and I was really, I was getting really stressed about like not hearing back from them. <laughs> yeah, but um, when I when I did find out, when I went in and and she told me, um, I think my re- initial reaction, I was, yeah, I was surprised, but I was also, but also not surprised at the same time, and like in a really weird way, just. Yeah, just like just kind of looking back and um, and looking at myself currently um, and, and also knowing about autism and just uh, putting myself in it, putting myself in that mm-hmm. trait or anybody like me even. Yeah, it, it started to make sense when I started to like think of it more in like a, in a holistic point of view. And then also um, I felt I felt relieved, too. I felt like, mm-hmm. yeah, just the, just the fact that it started, things started making sense. And it wasn't just like, oh, I'm just like this person that 
that's just never going to fit in kind of thing. Or just like, like my feelings started to make more sense. And I knew that there were a lot of people out there like me. Mm-hmm. I felt more at peace because of that. But I was also, yeah, I, I kind of went through a lot of like stages of grief too, because I was also, I think I was also angry and upset and yeah, I'm trying to go back in time and stuff just because I also felt like I, I, I felt kind of resentful about like all the times about the different points in my childhood where I wish I knew. Yeah, I decided to to feel, just kind of go through those stages of grief about like what I missed mm-hmm, out on, mm-hmm. if I missed out on anything. Um, but I felt like I missed out a lot yeah. <laughs> if I just knew. Yeah. Did you have a sense of how your parents felt? Obviously, they were supportive of you, but how did they react to it? Yeah, they were um, almost the same way. Like, they were surprised. But like, when I was like, when I was during that waiting time, and I was sending them all those articles, they were realizing that it wasn't like the most surprising thing. <laughs> but yeah, they you know, they felt bad that they didn't, they didn't know. Um, they didn't know before. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. and I think they just trusted that I would still continue to be the same person just with knowing that I might need additional help sometimes. And and if you were advising parents who whose children were who who were receiving this information, not not when the child is two or three, when they're too little to understand their parents' reaction, but is there anything you'd recommend for them to do or not to do? I mean, once they've learned the diagnosis, yeah. Um, so I think there are two things. One one I think it's really important for parents to not withhold that from their child, to not withhold that mm-hmm. diagnosis from their child. Um, I actually had a lot of parents think like after after like knowing everything I've been through, after knowing the kind of person I am now, and after knowing um, yeah that I'm autistic, they would go like, oh, from based on yeah, just based on like you and how you're doing, Kayla, and how you're and how you're doing well. I think I'm not going to tell my child that that they have dyslexia, they have ADHD, they have autism because because you didn't know and you turned out fine. And I kept telling them, I don't think that's why I turned out fine. I think I turned out ultimately fine despite of that, <laughs> not because of that. I, I think yeah. if I, when you don't have a diagnosis or you don't know you're diagnosed, you start calling yourself other things and other people start calling you other things too. Um, awkward, lazy, just all these other adjectives come in that it would just, it would just take out a lot of stress and a lot of internal angst for young children just to know that they're still themselves and, and they're not, they're not lazy. They're not like anything that's just like the static condition. Mm-hmm. But also at the same time, I don't think that parents, maybe it might not be good to show like the immediate initial reaction to the child. I mean, of course, any parent, like even, yeah, even me, I'd be really concerned about my child's future and what that means for us as a family and specifically my child growing up. And I think having that two days, a couple of weeks or so to process as, yeah, as a family, as a, even on your own would probably be better, especially for a young child. And then, and then kind of sit down with the child and tell them. Um, what the doctor said, yes, yeah, make sure to tell that child that they're still, they're still valued, they're still loved, they're still whatever kind of person they were before, if they're still, if they're creative, if they're really hardworking, um, make sure that they're still themselves, <laughs> basically, make sure that they know that, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but just sometimes they might, yeah, they might run into situations where they might need some extra help with communicating and processing, and then the parents will be here, other specialists will be there to, to help them however they want to, to be the best they can be. Mm. That's really, really helpful. So what was the treatment? I mean, what kind of help were you able to get and did it make an immediate difference? Sure. I think the um, most obvious was school when I was in college and of course in grade school too. I didn't have any extra time on tests. And when I went to Oxford for my master's degree, I um, actually went to disability services and showed them my diagnosis and told them I was um, autistic because it was actually the assessor put at the end of my 
on my assessment, the, the paper diagnosis that um, they recommended, since they knew I was going to grad school, they recommended I, um, I seek any, any additional accommodation that's available, basically, that I should, that they recommended mm-hmm. I, I mm-hmm. have that support. And all of a sudden, I was just, I was so shocked at, like, just how, of how much better it was <laughs> for me, because I really needed them extra time to submit essays. Um, I had a note taker, which I didn't, I, I, it was just ended up being, like, just, like, this whole beneficial thing. I was just significantly less internally chaotic, basically. And then the peak of our class was going on during the peak of COVID. Oh. And I was very stressed and I was definitely flaring up with anxiety, I think because of just everything going on in the world, me being so far away from home. And all of that really helps. And a lot of it started becoming available to a lot of other, to, to every student too, like extra time on, on essays and stuff. I think it helped all of the people that might that might have started having anxiety flares for the first time in at Oxford were also being able to be able to get help too and I think that it was just it was so beneficial oh that that's really that's really good to hear we'll be right back after these messages welcome back to the show I want to turn now to your wonderful book Afrotistic this young adult book which helps others understand the depth and the breadth of autism spectrum because several of the characters in the book have autism disorder. So can you talk first about what prompted you to write this book? I know that you've always liked to write, but what prompted you to write this particular book? So yeah, I always like to just write basically in general, like you were saying, but I stopped reading actually from after like we had to read in high school, I stopped reading until, yeah, maybe I was like 24 or so. I started picking up reading for fun again. And, um, and like, once I started doing that, I started, I started over criticizing books in my head, just going, Oh, why can't I something like that? Or like, Oh, even I could do that kind of thing. And, and then I just started, I just realized I needed to actually sit down and write a book if I want to keep like talking like that, um, like even just to myself. And, um, <laughs> and so when, just the more I read, the more I realized that the, the few books about autism, there was nothing, it was absolutely nothing about um, a black autistic girl. It, to me, that was really, it was it was kind of strange, <laughs> so I just realized that's that's what I wanted to that's what I wanted to write about in that particular um, way. I think I I've, I've said this before that I've heard from many parents who have autistic children that when you know an autistic child, you know an autistic child. I mean, you it's it's tempting but wrong to sort of assume that one person's experience with autism is going to be the same as others. And in this book, you really drive that point home in that you bring together many characters who have different types of autism. I mean, was it important to you to, as you came up with the concept, was that a story that you really wanted to tell? Um, yes and no at the same time, actually. So when I just came up with the overall concept and characters, I I made it more like kind of family focused at first. But then when I started writing, the plot was, yeah, it was going better, um, started focusing on school. So it was a lot easier for me to introduce other autistic characters. And I felt really, really passionate about making sure it wasn't just like the typical character to see in the media. Um, it wasn't just like, mm-hmm. oh, the completely computer genius or like the loner or just like the non-speaking um, person that people cast aside. Um, basically, I wanted... I wanted mm-hmm. to make sure mm-hmm. that, um, like, if there was a non-speaking person, like, for example, Noah's brother, that they weren't cast aside, they, they, their personality was coming out. Like, everyone had a personality, everybody had a unique strength and weakness, every single person in the book, and I wanted all of that to be highlighted and celebrated. Yeah, and you did such a, a good job there. So, you know, we talked about this a little earlier about you not having diverse school experiences growing up, and in the book, Noah talked about feeling left out and alone and non-black 
because of her autism. She thought everybody saw her as the, quote, weird kid, end quote, versus the black kid. I mean, did her experience come at all from your own experience? I mean, did you feel that way when you were growing up? Yeah, that was definitely a yes and no answer as well. <laughs> yes, yes, def- definitely in hindsight. But honestly, I never, I never thought to express myself, like just to express it like that at all, not even to like myself. I didn't have that mm-hmm. kind of phrasing at the time. And it didn't, and actually that, those kind of lines that, that Noah was thinking didn't come out until I was, until I wrote it, basically. Yeah, if I was intentional about being as introspective as Noah, as Noah is, I definitely, I'm sure that I would have had really similar thoughts. I would imagine that once you got your diagnosis and understood that you were not alone, you weren't alone in the Black community, did that change? Was it fair to say that you became more identified, I mean, racially, or is that not really a thing for you? Um, I feel like it's, I've been a lot more confident, but I feel like it's just more, yeah, just more of a self-esteem thing more than, um, more than mm-hmm, it's more mm-hmm, my mm-hmm. internal thoughts changing instead of like, it's not necessarily, I can't really say for sure, but it's my, but it's my ex- external circumstances changing. I just think it's more about like, I, I personally know there's one, there's more than one way to be a black person. There's more, basically it's just, I just need to be myself. Um, I need to celebrate who I am, celebrate who other people are mm-hmm. and just live life like that. Yeah, my there there was another point about the book that I, I that really struck home for me. <laughs> in the character Noah's parents didn't believe in therapy, and she says in the course of the book that my mom's weirded out by it. It's not a thing in our culture. That actually hit home for me because I had a brother who ultimately got a diagnosis with a mental health issue in much later life in his forties. But as he was growing up, there were lots of clues in retrospect and. My parents were of the generation where similarly, they didn't trust the concept of therapy. Clearly, you've benefited from it. And thankfully, the stigma about it seems to be going away. Right. But did you experience this perspective over time at any point in, in your life, in real life? I think I actually, even myself, I had a stigma about going to therapy. I felt like that was, that showed that I needed more help than I just felt like I thought I needed, I guess. Um, when I, when I was, uh, when I was in my early twenties specifically, which is really unfortunate as somebody who was studying psychology and everything, <laughs> my parents, they were, um, I actually went to, um, I was a really elite athlete when I was in high school actually. And I was, my parents actually referred me to, um, a sports psychologist actually. I'm sorry to interrupt you just one second. You were an elite athlete. What did you, what was your sport? Oh yeah. I ran track. I was, I, I was ah. really good at the 400 meters specifically. Like I was like a multi-time like state champion <laughs> and stuff. I went to the university. I did actually on a scholarship. This is a, a track scholarship actually. Wow. That's interesting. They referred you to a sports yeah, psychologist. Yeah. Cause I think, mm-hmm. yeah, just, um, just to get help with like, just like general, like what did that was just sports anxiety basically. Um, and um, like, if mm-hmm. I just got like, yeah, if I just was able to like kind of tame my nerves and stuff. Yeah, the, the therapist wasn't helpful to me. Um, I think that's why I also have a <laughs> therapy ever since. Because, I mean, she used to, like, eat during our sessions. Uh, one time I flat out told her I felt suicidal. And she was just like, oh, a lot of people feel like that. So it was just a lot. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, so I just didn't really feel like I, I think even into my, yeah, into my mid-20s, I didn't really, didn't really associate all therapists to be good, basically. So I was really reluctant to like be, yeah, using copayments to, to go to therapy after. Yeah. But my parents, the fact that they referred me to somebody in the first place when I was a teenager, I think that they were, like, they were probably reluctant to, but I think they didn't have like an overall stigma as a lot of people I know, especially in the Black community. When I wrote about Noah's mom, I was envisioning, um, actually, if I had a future daughter, for example, for example, like my husband mm-hmm. is mm-hmm. from, he's um, from Nigeria. I'm obviously I'm African American, 
And um, so it's just like the cultural differences uh, between having a, a mom originally from, from West Africa. And I just know there's a, a lot of stigma um, about mental health, mental health care in, in West Africa. Specifically. I researched there. I researched in, in Nigeria specifically. And then also within the Christian community, too. So I wanted mm-hmm. to just, yeah, to reference that just kind of like back and forth between parents. Yeah, no, you know, that makes sense. I just want to pause here for a second to say your comment about what the sports psychologist said reminds me that I know that parents still can be reluctant. I mean, it makes sense if your child is young, you know, you just, there's a lot of reasons why you would have reluctance, which I see very clearly the benefits of therapy. I I definitely promote it. However, (laughs) once you decide to cross that line and, and seek therapy, you have to find someone who is good. There is such a thing as someone who is not good. I mean, the sports psychologist responding to you with like, oh, everybody feels that way. <laughs> That's an example of bad therapy. Yeah. So the, the the good thing is that, I mean, I know instances where bad therapy has dissuaded people from the whole practice. I mean, and it, it's, it's difficult. You're in one-on-one situations. Someone says things to you that don't sound right. It's hard to know to trust again. But just wanted to stop and say that the, the good thing that you did and that other people should do is just keep going with somebody else, certainly not with the same person, <laughs> but with somebody else. Exactly. Because it, it be, therapy can be helpful, but not when it's not right. <laughs> so <laughs> now in, in your book, there's a lot of adults who are, some of whom are understanding and they're knowledgeable and they're really helpful with the autistic characters in the book. They, there is, I'm not going to give too much away. I mean, this is a young adult book, but I read it like I was reading a book for myself. It was, I found it very entertaining. So I don't want to give anything away because I want everyone to read it. But there are lots of adults that help a lot of the students that are autistic, but but there's some that don't at all. I mean, they really get a mixed bag of adult behavior. Mm-hmm. Was that born of things you had seen while in school? Or was it just easy to imagine how people could be helpful and not helpful? I, I did want to show examples of adult figures who could have a, like both a positive and negative influence on someone like Noah specifically, especially somebody mm-hmm. who's really quiet. Because a lot of a lot of the books, especially the first half of the book, was her thoughts. Like you just you would hear really short answers from her in the, in the, the dialogue, like no, yes, okay, paragraphs and paragraphs would just be like what is what she's thinking. So how adults are navigating a quiet girl with a lot of with the with a really beautiful personality. And, and a lot of inner thoughts going on. But I was also mm-hmm. really mindful that like when I was putting in these adult figures, I needed to make sense with the book. Um, it's, a, it's a young adult book, <laughs> of course. And I wanted to make sense mm-hmm. that it made, it was um, a good book for teenagers to feel relatable to. I just wanted to make sure various teachers um, and various um, support systems that she had were a mixture of, of different ways that people would realistically respond to a, a really quiet teen, basically. So... What do you think that Black parents in particular can learn about children with autism from Afrotistic? So what do you want them to take away from this book? And what would you want them to know from this book about raising an autistic child? I, um, I definitely want parents to, to really experience like kind of inner thoughts that or interactions that autistic girl like Noah could have um, like during school, like when, when the parent's not there. But not just Noah, but also also with her brother Ray. There's a lot of other characters in the books. Um, so just like having more and more insight, especially with like the challenges specifically with Black autistic children, like Noah and Ray. Mm-hmm. Um, like the the challenges that 
they would have to overcome and like the strength that they would have to develop because of it, like just in different hurdles that generationally we parents might not um, understand these days. And also just with like neurodevelopmentally, just as like if you're if you're not autistic, that you might not be able to to consider before and until reading about it. So I definitely hope that yeah, that they that there's definitely various ways to to thrive, to learn, to love, yeah, and to struggle <laughs> as like a as a black autistic teen. And I hope that they would kind of just understand a little bit more. Now, I have to say that I would also highly recommend this to everyone independent of whether they have an autistic child in their lives because you describe so well Noah's reaction to things and every parent will see some aspect of their child in some of the reactions and the compassion with which you write about how she goes through life and and she is acknowledging that some of the things that she does are going to make her different from the other people and her, her struggle with but confidence about them it's really it's not just for parents who have autism in their family it's really it's really gives it gives everyone insight on just the the wonderful world of young people and what they're thinking so Thank you so much for writing this. I enjoyed it, and I, I want everyone listening to read it. Even even if you don't have any young adults, definitely worth reading. And one of the things, just, just to wrap this up, one of the things that you said earlier in this conversation, which really comes clearly through, through the book, and that is the important thing, if you have this diagnosis, is to let the child know they're still themselves. I mean, what comes through clearly is that Noah is a, a thoughtful, creative, really smart with respect to robotics and AI. I mean, she has a real skill set. <laughs> and, and it's just, it just the, the diagnosis seemed to bring more clarity to how her brain worked, but certainly not her whole self. It was just a, a, a part of her that, that she learned to cope with. So I thank you again. And I'm going to wrap it up here. But before we go, I, first of all, I want to say thank you. Thank you for talking to me about this. Thank you for the book. I would really love for you to do one last thing, and that is to play a mini version of the GCP lightning round. I'll only ask you the first two questions because the other two questions are parenting questions. But the first question is, what's your favorite poem or saying? I So my answer to that would actually be a Bible verse. Um, it would be Philippians. 13, okay. which is, I cannot do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So that's, that's my, that's just like what, what I really like, or like to like kind of say to myself when I'm, when I'm having any kind of struggle. That's great. Give me the, the site again, the actual site of the passage. Uh, Philippians 4.13. Great. And then finally, your favorite two children's books. You're allowed to include your own <laughs> as one of them. Books that you loved reading or having read to you when you were growing up. Um, in our church, we have like this mentorship program where um, we mentor like the, the children um, in our church. I'm actually, I'm actually the one, the, mm-hmm. one of the Sunday school teachers. And my mentee, um, I gave her this um, middle grade book and she absolutely loved it. The book is called The Woman in Science, 50 Fearless Pioneers Who Changed the World. Ah. She really liked that book. To shout out my book too, all the children in my church like that, like my <laughs> my book too as well. As well. <laughs> and then, um, <laughs> and then also, um, also when I was growing up, I liked absolutely anything by Dr. Seuss. I love, um, I love books that rhyme. Um, I like to picture books at the time. So, oh yes, me too. I still have the Dr. Seuss books that I grew up with. So. Kayla, I thank you so much. I thank your mom as well for introducing the two of us. And just as a quick aside, I haven't mentioned this at all, but Kayla also has this other world of 
tech and her husband's doing these amazing things in computer science. So there's, it's like a whole nother chapter to this family that's pretty amazing. And I'm sure we'll be hearing about that in another podcast. But for now, thank you for joining this parenting podcast. And thank you so much for being with us today. And, and I can't wait to, to read the next okay, book. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. I hope everyone listening enjoyed this conversation and that you'll come back for more. Please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and tell your friends. For more parenting info and advice, please check out the Ground Control Parenting blog at groundcontrolparenting.com. You can also find us on Instagram and Facebook at Ground Control Parenting and on LinkedIn under Carol Sutton Lewis. The Ground Control Parenting with Carol Sutton Lewis podcast is a part of the Seneca Women Podcast Network in partnership with iHeartMedia. Until the next time, take care and thanks for listening.